This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. Our topic today is It was supposed to be zombies! Our guests today are author Daniel Krauss and Summer Scares committee member Carolyn Chesla. Welcome to summer, I guess, and boy, I don't think I'm overstating it to say that 2020 has really put us through the ringer so far. Every day the world is throwing something at us, something that seems like the prologue of a dystopian novel that I don't want to read and definitely don't want to be a character in. A lot of people are complaining about staying home or wearing masks, which is dumb. You should just wear a mask. Other people are complaining that this was not the pandemic they signed up for. This is not the pandemic that we were promised in so many books and so many movies for so many years. It was supposed to be zombies. But here we are. And even though we don't have zombies, many of us have a roadmap for survival because of horror. We've seen that you need bravery and tenacity and multiple exits out of your house. We know that you shouldn't go off investigating strange noises or doing basically anything in a tent. But horror can teach us other things as well. We can also learn empathy and resilience, and we can find ways to process our emotions from the safe distance of a story. At STEM Read, we've used horror novels like Quarantine the Loners by Lex Thomas and The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein by Kirsten White to explore everything from epidemiology to first aid to psychology to circuitry to the history of medicine and even the history of grave robbing. We love a good, scary book because it can capture kids' attention and serve as a gateway to some great STEM learning. In this episode, I'm talking with Carolyn Chesla, the Dean of the Library and of Learning Resources and Assessment at Prairie State College. Carolyn is part of the Summer Scares team, a committee that creates book lists and resources to help libraries connect readers with great horror novels. We'll recommend lots of books to help you escape this summer. After that, I'll interview a master of horror, Daniel Krauss. Daniel is the author of YA books like Rotters and The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch. He collaborated with Guillermo del Toro to create The Shape of Water and Troll Hunters. His latest YA novel, Bent Heavens, is a stem read selection, and this August he's releasing The Living Dead, which he co-wrote with George Romero. But first, here's our interview with Carolyn Chesla. My name is Carolyn Chesla, and I am a library administrator at a community college in the south suburbs of Chicago. I'm also part of the committee for Summer Scares, which is a program designed to bring horror novels into libraries for readers of all ages and also to improve librarian skills around readers' advisory when it comes to horror. You know, I think we can all agree that it's been a pretty horrific year so far. Not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel for the rest of the summer. Why do you think horror is important in times like this? I have always been a, a, like a horror comfort reader. When I'm sick, when I don't feel well, or when I'm stressed out, I go to horror. That's what I want to read. When this started, I 
could not read horror right away only because everything that I had on my list was about a pandemic. I had just finished Paul Tremblay's book, which is about a pandemic. I was I was very relieved that I'd finished it already right before it had happened, but I was also upset that I had read it right before all this happened. What I needed was something completely different. And I think horror fills that need to escape. So we talk a lot about using horror as a way to deal with the weird realities that are going on. Unfortunately, life now is mirroring horror novels in so many ways. So it's less about using it to sort of process and more about using it as the escape. Uh, I was talking to a friend who does the same thing with romance novels. She knows how they're going to go. She knows what to expect. She can put herself right in and it, it's providing all the comfort that she's expecting and, and she gets what she needs. And I think horror fills that same role for me. There are solid tropes and patterns that we see repeated over and over again. So if you're going into a vampire novel, you know for the most part what you're going to get. You know, the, the author may have his own or her own twists, but you're going to get vampires and you know what vampires are and, and you're not going to be too surprised. And I think right now we need that. <laughs> you need that knowledge of I know what I'm getting. There's a real fear of lack of control right now. A lot of stuff that we can't do anything about, things happening to us. And so it's very comforting to pick up a book and know there are set rules and you know what you can expect. At first, I couldn't read any new novels because I didn't want any surprises. So I was going back to things that I, I'm like, I know how this works out. I'm going to reread a bunch of books. Then I got the new Grady Hendrix book, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which was excellent. I was excellent. Say, speaking of vampires. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so the horror comedies, which also usually tend to work out for the best. Those are very good. Yeah. yeah. I, I also had to do tried and true stuff for a while. Couldn't do new stuff. And could only do short stories, too. Didn't mm -hmm. have the attention span for a full novel at all for a while. Yeah, so it sounds like horror can be a springboard for a lot of things. In STEM Read, we use it as, as a springboard for science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, we find those connections. What else do you see it used for? If, if we're looking at it from a uh, sort of educational point of view, it can you be used for every subject. My background's in English and writing. So I love using horror to look at how a story is created and built. And part of my favorite thing about horror is historical research. So I think it provides a really cool lens into history. Folklore and anthropology are also another great thing, a sort of avenue to take. My 14-year-old daughter recently reread Rebecca, which is not classically horror, but is sort of gothic tale. And we were talking about it and I realized it's a great way to start conversations about LGBTQ issues. I think horror provides an entrance to pretty much any area that you want to focus on. You just have to find the right one when, and you're in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I read uh, Lovecraft Country for the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of just getting historical context for things and, and also like there's some very cool history of STEM concepts that come into it. I love that a horror book can do that. You know, it can bring in some kind of like Lovecraftian old gods, but also give you a context for race relations. Exactly. I think two really good examples of that are Alma Katsu's books, The Hunger and The Deep. The Hunger is all about the Donner Party and traveling in, you know, the westward push. So you've got all sorts of things going on there mixed with creepy cannibal monsters. And then, 
The Deep is about the Titanic. It's about class relations on the Titanic and what that would have looked like. And then she throws in a little World War One medical history in there too. I was fascinated by all of it. I just finished a book for review that's about Pierce, the president, which we never hear anything about because he mm -hmm. served one term and had uh, very little impact. But I realized I wanted to learn more about him based on this very classic haunted house book about his White House. The author had very clearly done their research. It was great. It was really great. So I think this is a whole little genre that I'm gonna start to explore that historical horror. Yeah, that sounds awesome. What was that book called? Uh, it's called The Residence and it's by Andrew Piper. So one of the things that we've talked about before is this idea of the need to carve out space for reading for pleasure in academic settings. So do you wanna talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So before I was a library administrator, I was a faculty librarian at the same community college. And one of the things that I noticed is that students really do need as much of an escape as anyone does. I worked with my fellow librarians to build a fairly robust fiction collection within the academic library, and then seated our displays with fiction titles, promoted them the same way we would have promoted any new nonfiction purchases that we had. It became so popular, we ended up having a section for only new releases that were fiction, um, and those circulated really well. The great thing about that is that our faculty realized that we were doing this, and they came in and, and got books from us too. And so they also provided that link to their students. You know, in the class, they could talk about how they had just gotten this great new novel, in our library, and often it connected to something they were doing in class and they were able to thread it in that way. I think it's so important to provide both the materials and also the space, the physical space for students to read for pleasure, to let their brain make connections. And what ends up happening is they read fiction and then depending on what they're reading, they will make natural connections to the things that they've been learning in classes or the situations that are going on in their lives. And all it does is just strengthen and enrich what's going on in their brains. It goes such a long way in terms of their success academically and socially. Absolutely, I agree completely. Well, let's talk about some of the work you are doing to help out librarians through Summer Scares. So Summer Scares is the brainchild of Becky Spratford, who is fondly referred to in the library world as the horror maven. Becky has made it her life's work to bring horror to every person who ever picks up a book. She decided that librarians needed help in reader's advisory with horror. Either librarians didn't know enough about horror to recommend it, or when they did recommend it, patrons would say, I don't read scary stuff. This sort of is a twofold, provide librarians with the knowledge of horror so that they can incorporate it into their reader's advisory and provide them with the knowledge to maybe convince a patron who previously was not into scary books to say, okay, well, have you thought about trying this, which maybe isn't necessarily like, ooh, spooky or something jumping out at you, but it's still considered horror and it's something you might like and, you know, might want to pursue. So that's, that's where summer scares is. The idea is you create programming in the summer around three age groupings of horror novels. We have adult titles, young adult and middle grade. And we also invite the authors of those novels to participate in the programming with their local libraries. It's really great. It's 
professional development for librarians, but it's also a way to get readers interacting with the authors. And we're promoting some novels that may have previously fallen through the cracks or not been quite as heavily promoted before. And so we kind of give them their due. So this was the second year that you did it, right? And they come out on um, Valentine's Day. Yes. <laughs> This was the second year. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I'm on the committees. Um, it's uh, me and Becky, representative from the Horror Writers Association. And we also have partners with Book Riot. So Kelly Jensen from Book Riot is on the committee and with School Library Journal. So we have Kira Parrott. We also have an honorary author that sits on our committee. Last year it was Grady Hendricks. And this year it's uh, Stephen Graham Jones. For us as librarians and, and journalists, we're a little bit awestruck also to you know get to work side by side with really cool horror authors <laughs> it's great because it lets us hear about titles that even we may not have heard of and then we get to present this list and the most fun part is presenting the authors like letting the authors know hey we picked your we picked your title for summer scare so it's really cool yeah awesome can you give us some highlights from this year's list and last year's list for people who are catching up uh, this year's selections are in the valley of the sun by andy davidson the ballad of black tom by victor Laval, and She Said Destroy, which is a collection of stories by Nadia Bulkin. They're all amazing. What we try to do is pick different types of horror, and we also try to have a short story collection in there too. Last year, we had Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones, My Soul to Keep by Tananari Dew, and Earthworm Gods by Brian King. And what was really cool about last year's was we really spread the gamut. Earthworm Gods was one of these classic, crunchy, monster horror books, sort of pulpy. <laughs> Mongrels is a very non-traditional werewolf book. Stephen's writing is so lyrical and so haunting, and it, it, it's just so unique and unbelievable. And Tananari Dew's My Soul to Keep is sort of a, a vampire novel, but also a love story, which is how I would always pitch it to non-horror fans. This is a love story at its heart, and the horror is sort of secondary. And so I think we've done the same thing this year, both with our adult and with our, our middle grade and young adult titles. Our young adult titles are The Agony House by Sherry Priest, and it's actually an illustrated novel. Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova, uh, which is a really cool sort of modern take on Brooklyn Latinx witches, and Daughters Unto Devils by Amy Lukovics. The other thing we try to do is highlight women authors and authors of color. We're really interested in promoting own voices, so we want to make sure that authors who are writing about their own stories from their own perspectives are highlighted as well. It's a, it's a really great wide collection of amazing, amazing stories. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into some of them and that I haven't gotten to yet. More to put on your list. Yes, That's absolutely. right. Always. And you also have some resources for programming too. We do. Yeah. So part of what we want to do is make things easy for librarians and provide some ready to go programming so you don't have to do too much of the heavy lifting on your own. So Becky has worked with all of the authors to create videos. So we have short videos from all of the authors talking about not just their book, but their writing process. We've partnered with a couple of other podcasts, including Ladies of the Fright. Those are great ways to promote as well. This year, we worked with the Green County Library District. They put together the most amazing booklet, 
And so it's got all the titles. It's got read-alikes. It's got book talk tips, readers group questions. And it's super pretty, easy to print out and ready to just sort of keep next to all your horror books right there on the shelf. And one of the authors who was highlighted last year was Daniel Krauss. You know, I would say his newest book is Bent Heavens, but he comes out with books so quickly, especially this year. He's got like six books or something. Yeah. So last year, one of Daniel's books was one of our YA titles. So we had Rotters, which is one of his older YA titles, but super excellent. Earlier this year, he came out with Bent Heavens, which is another YA title firmly in the horror camp as well. It was really fun to work with Daniel. He's a local to Chicago author. So I would say that Becky and I tend to leave heavily on him for local stuff. Hey, you're around. Can you want to help with this? Um, but he's always, uh, he's always fair game. And he's great to talk to about all parts of the writing process and horror. Generally, he knows more about horror than anyone I think I've ever met. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of books that can be a springboard to different types of learning, certainly the, the Zebulon Finch series, you know, when you think about that <laughs> historical fiction and horror, and history of STEM, that one definitely comes to mind. But Bent Heavens is one of the selections this year for STEM Read. We were planning a lot of things that were going to happen in a corn maze before mm. the pandemic, and it was going to be awesome. So we're, <laughs> we're re, retooling oh. our ideas. But um, what's your best pitch for people who should read Bent Heavens? I'm firmly a Gen Xer. So I grew up with the X-Files. I didn't grow up with them. I watched it in college. Uh, so to me, this, this was like... If you love the X-Files, <laughs> you're going to love Bent Heavens. Well, first of all, it has the best narrator. The main character is fabulous. She's strong and she's she's right, which I know that sounds weird, but having a, a teenage daughter myself, Dan got teenage girls spot on. Um, she is very, very accurate, but she's a lot of fun to read. For a former drama geek, he blended in high school musical theater, which was fabulous. I feel like he hit just all the great parts of a YA novel. And it's scary. It's very, very scary. The great thing about Bent Heavens is you're not ever really sure where it's going. And while being scary, it's also very emotional. It really does cause the reader to to tap into some strained empathetic feelings you know kind of puts the reader in a, in a position where maybe you're you're feeling for a character that you you wouldn't normally and it's got a great twist at the end and and you think about it for for weeks afterwards it's fabulous yeah i i love it i'm really excited to share it with more people and get programming in when people can meet together again to have a <laughs> to get one of our our large-scale programs around it because it just uh it blew my mind absolutely and i think you said corn maze um i will forever associate corn mazes with this book now and i i don't want to say too much because i feel like on the third page there's already something big that happens and so right. there's there's not a lot you, you want to give away part of the fun of this book is exploring what happens and experiencing it uh in a moment it's a wild ride it's worth taking <laughs> One of the things you said at the beginning was, it's hard right now. It doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And immediately what I thought of is, or it's a horror novel and there is a light and it's a train <laughs> and it's coming right at us. Yeah. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully, uh, hopefully <laughs> it's a, yeah, maybe it's a solar punk sci-fi novel and we're all going to be saved. <laughs> yeah. You know, all I can say is that despite how scary everything in the world is, and I feel like 2020 has really 
trying to make it as scary as it can, I will still go to horror for my comfort read. There's something about horror that really gets to the core of the, it sounds cheesy, but of the human experience. And there's something about reading about how people deal with fear and with fearful situations. And it, it really does help process how we are dealing with things. And um, it's still an escape. Hopefully life will never be as bad as the scariest horror novel that we can find. <laughs> All right, yeah. if the zombies come, I'm out. That's it, I'm done. <laughs> You just heard our interview with Carolyn Chesla. Up next is our interview with author Daniel Krause. I met Carolyn Chesla at C2E2 when she was part of our STEM in the Scream panel, along with Daniel Krause, Rebecca Thompson from Fermilab, and Karen Hording from the Society of Women Engineers. I 100% agree with Carolyn's assessment that we need to carve out space for pleasure reading, both in and out of the classroom, for our students and for ourselves. I think you can learn just as much from a fun book, an adventure book, a scary book, as you can from an important book. My next guest, Daniel Krauss, manages to write books that are fun and adventurous and scary all at once. And, dare I say it, they are also important. His duology, The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch, tells the story of a teenage gangster who is murdered in the 1890s but returns from the dead. He is the most articulate and likably unlikable walking corpse you're ever going to meet. In the novels, he sulks through every war, revolution, and scientific discovery in recent American history as he tries to uncover the secret of his immortality. Krauss's latest book is Bent Heavens, the story of a teenage girl whose father has disappeared. When she and her friend find something alien in the woods, they need to decide whether to report it to the authorities or to take matters into their own hands to find out what really happened to her father. The book explores everything from the psychology of corn mazes to astrobiology to radioactivity. Bent Heavens is very timely, and I love the ways it explores the idea of the alien and the other and examines torture as a way to express rage in some way, however impotent that rage becomes. Daniel Krauss's next book is The Living Dead, which he completed based on George Romero's unfinished manuscript. Here's my interview with Daniel Krauss. This interview was recorded live at C2E2 before the pandemic. I want to start by talking about zombies. Great. You've been obsessed with zombies forever. Well, I've, I've been obsessed with George Romero forever. And of course, you know, he sort of more or less invented the modern concept of the zombie. The idea of a zombie goes back much further, but Romero, of course, brought it into the sort of Americanized version, the, the undead, flesh-eating ghoul, as he called it in Night of the Living Dead. So yeah, I've been obsessed with Romero and his sort of zombies since I was five or six years old. Let's talk about the progression of zombies in your books. So you have Zebulon Finch. Do you think of him as a zombie? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, sort of technically he is. You know, he is a someone who is shot and then a little while later comes back to life and cannot be killed as unfortunately for him, as he finds out over a hundred years, he, he cannot be killed and that becomes a big problem. So yeah, I think he is a zombie. He's not a zombie in any of the ways we typically think of them. He's very articulate, very erudite. Uh, the only difference is his blood is not pumping and he doesn't heal from wounds and he's he's rotting, but on a very gradual basis. So it takes, takes him a century really to, to fully rot. 
and then he sees Night of the Living Dead. So That's right. talk about that. Yeah, so in Zebulon Finch 2, it's a two-volume set. In the second one, there's a section in the 1960s, and he kind of, it's sort of a Manson-esque sort of section where he heads out to the desert and becomes kind of a cult leader, and he becomes obsessed with the movie Night of the Living Dead, which was a newish movie uh, at the time, in the same way that Manson was obsessed with the Beatles' White Album. He thinks that George Romero was trying to transmit messages to him personally through Night of the Living Dead. So he keeps going to drive-in theaters and keeps watching it and keeps trying to figure out what Romero is telling him to do. So yeah, so before he was brought on to the George Romero project, there's proof already out there that I was always thinking about him. (laughs) So how did that come about then? Going from Zebulon Finch, then you go into the George Romero project. Right. I mean, there's a few books in between, but essentially... You know, after George died, and George was, you know, my absolute hero. But I didn't know him. I mean, I met him once, but I didn't really know him. Uh, Shortly after he died, his wife and manager were going through various unmade projects and, you know, had this epic zombie novel that he was working on. It was now doomed to be unfinished. So they talked about it, and they decided to reach out to me. They were aware of my, my work, my former collaborations with Guillermo del Toro. So I was somebody who had collaborated before, and Ramirez's manager, you know, especially knew that I was a huge fan and acolyte and devotee of Romero. So they thought I might be the right person to be able to finish this book with the sort of sensitivity and care of making sure it hewed to Romero's work and his outlook on life and death and undeath and all that. How was that collaboration process then? You've collaborated with Guillermo del Toro, but now you're collaborating with someone who has passed away. How did you get into the mindset of being a co-creator on this? It was a long process that I uh, really enjoyed. You know, it was almost as if I was preparing to write a biography of Romero at first, because I sort of had to do that before I could begin working on the manuscript. You know, at the beginning, we just had his pages, the manuscript, the pages he had written. That would change later on, but I'll get to that. So I had to figure out where the book was going. So the research began in very obvious places. I rewatched all of his movies, not just those zombie movies, but all of his movies, all the commentary tracks. I read every interview with him I could find. I read scholarly books and analyses and articles about him. I interviewed his wife at length about just how he felt about, you know, life and death and politics and technology and all these things that were uh, important or he disdained or anything. I wanted to know everything I could so I I would sort of know what he would think about in any situation. And kind of almost most critically, she supplied me a list of his favorite art. So his favorite movies, most uh, importantly, but also his favorite music and books and stuff. And so what I did was I studied the stuff that he loved. For example, of doing with movies, you know, I would look at his favorite movies, watch them, try to understand them, and, and try to figure out what it was about these things that inspired George Romero. And then I would try to be inspired by them too. The best example is really he was obsessed with this play, The Tales of Hoffman. He was mentioning it in interviews for 50 years. So I, I watched Tales of Hoffman several times and began to see what he was drawing from it. I began to see reflections of Tales of Hoffman in his movies. For some of the structure of the book that was missing, I actually used Tales of Hoffman, this old, old musical, this old play, as a structural guideline. You know, the play was in three acts. And I thought, well, let's, let's structure the book in three acts and each, use each theme of this uh, old opera as a theme of these books' acts. And I did that with other books, too, in other, in other films. 
using them as sort of a guiding light to be there when George wasn't. In terms of science and research, your books are very, very steeped in history and history of STEM. And how do you bring that in? What's your research process like? I thrive on research. I love research. You know, some is more fun than others. You know, some of it can be dry. But generally, that's not the case. For The Living Dead, George set me up uh, almost like he was trying to make my life difficult. He uh, (laughs) set up a number of problems that I had to solve. Uh, He had written the beginning of this section, for example, that takes place on an aircraft carrier. I don't know anything about aircraft carriers, and there's a lot to know. I don't know marine hierarchy. I don't know military life. I don't know every intricate thing of these floating cities that have tens of thousands of people on them. So that's an example of something where I really had to, before I even touched that section and began to work on it, I needed to know a lot. So I researched everything from basic sort of books about the military to technical diagrams and grids uh, and cutaways of ships. I visited an aircraft carrier that's stationed in New York and got a private tour by their uh, head of communications, who it turns out was a huge Romero fan. So he took me on this tour (laughs) and was gleefully offering suggestions of, oh, this would be a great way a zombie could die if he got sucked into this engine here. (laughs) So yeah, I I draw, draw a lot of my plots from research. You have sort of an inkling of what you want, but once you start digging into research, you start it, it changes your book. You start seeing other things that you had never known of that are better than what you thought of, had imagined to begin with, as ways to convey or communicate what you wanted to. So you have so many projects in the pipeline. How, how does that work in terms of your writing process? Do you give yourself a time limit on research, or do you just let that go as long as it takes you? I mean, I let it go as long as it takes me, but within limits. I mean, all, all books, most books anyway, have deadlines. So they're, they're sort of intrinsically, there are limits to how long I can take. You know, sometimes you, you sell a finished book, in which case there aren't those deadlines. But typically, I've, I'm working on books that I have sold previous to finishing them. So yeah, I mean, it's, it takes as long as it takes. I tend to stagger it when I was doing Zebulon Finch, which was the most difficult research because it moved through so many eras. When I was writing, say, the 1940s, I would be researching the 1950s. So when I stopped writing at night, I would be doing my reading research and watching documentaries or whatever. So I was able to sort of do two things at once. So what was the most interesting part of your research that really took you in a new direction on either book? Oh, wow. You know, I, <laughs> probably the most difficult section of Zebulon Finch was World War II. I mean, there's, I think it's been confirmed there's no topic on Earth that's been written about more than World War II. That is a giant can of worms. It's an Olympic pool of worms. (laughs) If you're diving into World War II research, you can only ever, unless you're an expert, you can only ever have a general idea, even if you think you know. Once you go into it, the the information available will explode it in a million different directions. There's just so much out there. It becomes a, for me, it becomes a process of stopping myself. I'll decide, oh, there's someone has a fallout shelter in the backyard, and now I'm going to read 10 books about fallout shelter. <laughs> you know, so it's, a, it's an endless vortex of information. I'm trying to think if there's a, a particular one in uh, Living Dead. You know, there's, there's a section in the book that's sort of about uh, utopia. It's sort of after the fall of mankind and trying to rebuild society. And so I read a lot of interesting work that was about 
what would an ideal society look like? What are different ideas of utopias? And then sort of more practical matters, how would you rebuild the materials you would need when there is no more general electricity and so forth? How would you create steel? You know, how does one do that? How do you build watches? One of my pressing questions for you is, what is YA? And one of my favorite quotes from you is, I give zero shits about whether it's appropriate for kids and teens. I don't remember saying that, but it sounds like something I would say. (laughs) So, you know, Zebulon Finch is very challenging. A lot of your books are challenging and they, they can be dark. And your newest book, Bent Heavens, has some very, you know, heavy things going on in it. So how do you determine what is YA? Sort of in a practical sense, I don't. I write the books and then I turn them to my editors and my agents and sort of say, well, what do you think? Where do you want to put them? I, with very rare exception, have not begun projects thinking anything was a YA book or an adult book. I'm always just writing a book. There may be at some point during the writing where I think, okay, this is probably a YA book because its, it's characters seem to tend young and so forth. But there certainly have been other times where I finished a novel and I still didn't know if this was a young adult book or not. And you're right, I didn't care. <laughs> uh, so I would turn that over to my agents and, the, and then editors and say, well, what do you think? Where do you want to market this? My business, I hope, is not marketing in that sense. To some degree, these are all commercial labels. You know, it's how, how is the book going to be sold? Ideally, you know, for me, I get a wide readership of teens and adults. But you can't really put a book out for an adult edition and a teen edition. That's just not how the marketplace works. So a certain degree, these are commercial guidelines and that I don't want to get involved with and mess with. So that's, that's kind of one answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Sort of a less practical way of looking at the question is, what do I think young adult books are? And, you know, I'm a peculiar person to ask because I'm writing at the very top edge of young adult in the sense of what's generally permissible. To me, you know, I think if it has a young protagonist, that sort of makes it grist for the mill for young adults. Beyond that, I'm not overly concerned about, uh, certainly not about content. If a teenager's reading something and it's too much for them, they will stop reading. I certainly would not have blanched at any of the stuff I'm writing. I would have been excited by it. I would have been excited to see some of these things are tantalized by them or scandalized or horrified, but... As a reader, I love those emotions. You know, I love to be scandalized and horrified. Uh, And that was the case when I was a teen, and that's the case now. And there are other people who don't want those feelings as a teen and don't want them as an adult, and they would be advised to not read my books. (laughs) Yeah, I think it falls into that. The kids are all right. They're going to gravitate toward the things that they like and avoid the things that they don't. But in the market right now, it's, it does seem like the gatekeepers are being a lot more cautious. Oh, yeah. And I have never in my life received any kind of complaint or concern from a teenager, ever. Have you gotten complaints from librarians, teachers? Not really librarians. You will have the occasional just sort of general adult (laughs) type uh, parent type who may get upset but even that it's generally they get upset about sex stuff Mm -hmm. you know and I might have some of that but most of my stuff is more about violence and brutality and that kind of thing and in uh, you know American culture that stuff does not raise a fraction of the eyebrow that sex stuff does and it's it's crazy you know I have uh, some scenes in my books that if they were sex scenes would be the equivalent of totally insane sex scenes (laughs) 
but because they're violence, they, it gets people just look past it. So that's an issue with American culture that we're not going to solve right here. Right. When I was looking at Bent Heavens for our program, I was talking to people about it, telling them about the ideas, and they're like, yeah, we're fine with the alien torture, but there's a hand job in the book? I don't know right, uh, what's exactly. going to happen. So I just think it's the yeah, that's, priorities it's, are interesting. That's just baffling yeah. to me. That's, <laughs> I mean, I, I just absolutely hate hearing that. Well, let's talk a little bit about Bent Heavens. What was the kernel of that idea? The idea is actually an old one. A lot of my ideas I gestate sometimes for decades. You know, most of my books are from ideas that I have kicked around for many, many years. And then something, one year, something in my head will click and it works. So Bent Heavens is actually an, an older idea that I had around the time of Rodders. So that would have been like 2011, something like that. It didn't really involve much in the realm of uh, torture. At that point, it was sort of this, it was vaguely defined. I knew it was sort of a dark alien story, but I didn't, it was missing all sorts of things. And then there was the House report on U.S. torture programs that came out. And every and sort of all the hubbub around that, really all the stuff leading up to Abu Ghraib, most famously, really got me thinking about torture as, as a topic that wasn't really going away and will never go away, I fear. And, it, you know, and I started thinking about the concept of an alien. What is an alien? The word alien means different things. Mostly it's someone who's not like you. And it seemed like this was the time maybe to tell a story about people reacting in a hostile way to someone they considered an alien. And in this case, it just happened to be an actual outer space alien. But you can transpose that to however you want uh, socially. Uh, it felt like, I don't know, suddenly it felt very timely, the idea. In general, in terms of science fiction and horror, what is your goal for what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, authors would be well suited maybe to have an answer to that question. You know, what is, I mean, we certainly, it's a question you should have some sense of when you're talking about what is a book? What, what is the goal of a certain book? The goal of a career is something that I don't know that I've ever been asked, but I think when I l look at my books, there are threads that pull them all together. And the most obvious one is probably dealing with morality issues of bad versus badder, which is much more interesting than good versus evil. And the idea that we all have this propensity or this possibility of turning, of going over the line. Bent Heavens is probably the most explicit book I have about that. But all my books deal with that. When did you go too far to do something that was you thought was right? How bad, how wrong can you go to do something that's right? It's a question that we encounter every day in tiny ways, and then some of us in some countries encounter in big ways. What I think is really interesting is that the stories are very dark, but ultimately they're very hopeful. The characters keep trying to do better in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of my books take place in sort of isolated small towns, like where I grew up. As bleak as the books might get in some respects, there is a general sort of inherent hopefulness to these people who have decks stacked against them from day one and who are trying to get out of these situations or failing that because sometimes they just that's not going to happen just trying to survive and get through the next day we sitting here right now in this room and talking to mics like we're going to be fine like our day's going to be fine but there are some people whose day's not going to be fine, and just getting through the next few hours is going to be its own kind of struggle. And to keep that up day after day, there's a there's a bravery and a nobility in that. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Absolutely.
You just heard my interview with author Daniel Krauss. His books are twisty and frightening and complicated. They are great reads with the ability to open people's eyes and minds to big social, psychological, and scientific questions. They are not for the faint of heart, but they are fascinating journeys. Hopefully this episode has given you a lot of ideas for books you can read while we all deal with whatever fresh hell 2020 will throw at us. And remember, the great thing about a horror novel is that if it gets too scary, you can always close the book. Thanks to Daniel Krauss and Carolyn Chesla. You can learn more about my guests and the long list of books we referenced in our show notes. And if we still haven't convinced you to try reading on the dark side, there are plenty of great science fiction books out there. In fact, this summer, STEM Read is partnering with the NIU Libraries to bring you future-telling science plus fiction webinars. This series of three webinars brings together great sci-fi authors and STEM experts to explore everything from the future of science fiction to reverse engineering the human brain to the math and physics of weaponry. The first webinar, Past, Present, and Futurism, will look at the ways past pandemics have shaped art and what these troubled times might mean for the future of science fiction. We'll explore all of that with historian Valerie Garver, Hugo Award-winning editor of Uncanny Magazine Lynn M. Thomas, and authors Maurice Broadus and Mary Robinette Kowal. Our full schedule of future-telling webinars is now online. Learn more and register at stemread.com. The STEM Read podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.